Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Alrighty, we're going to jump right in. Matthew 23. You can turn there in your Bibles. We've got some in the back that you're welcome to steal if you'd like. We promote thievery here. We're crazy. Matthew 23. And uh, we have been taking a nice stroll through Matthew over the last several months. In the last few weeks, we've been in what we call Holy Week. If you're wondering, Holy Week is actually the week from Palm Sunday to Easter. And it is the last week of Jesus' basically earthly ministry until he is crucified on Good Friday and then he raises again on Easter. But that whole week is over a quarter of the four Gospels in the text, meaning that when you read the Gospel, if you open any page, there's over a 25% chance that it's going to be based on that week. There's a ton of content about it. So we've been taking each week and slowing down and just focusing on each piece. So today, we're technically in, uh, on Tuesday. And Tuesday has been this, uh, last year when we did the app that went walked through, we called it Tension Tuesday, uh, because like the storm, it is the massive, like, argument and conversation between basically the religious leaders and Jesus, and then all the crowds are watching. It's like the most epic debate ever. But what we've seen over the last few weeks uh, through different teachers, we've seen them trying to challenge and trick him so they have means to arrest him and to uh, get rid of this guy because he is, he is stepping on their reputation and their, and their systems. So uh, a couple weeks ago, we had Adam Brigham teach about uh, the temple, uh, or not the temple, the tax trap and how uh, they tried to trick him with, with the Roman currency and how he totally evaded that one really well. Uh, and then the next one we actually didn't cover because I taught kind of on a similar passage a long time ago in Matthew 5. But that was about resurrection and marriage and how they asked questions about that. He obviously did a good job at that one too. And then last week, Hannah uh, taught on the greatest commandment, which is the greatest commandments, because they are inseparable. If you love God, the Lord your God with all your mind, soul, heart, strength, all of that, then you'll love your neighbor. If you love your neighbor, you're able, like, they're, they're, you can't just do one without the other. They're together. So uh, Jesus has just really shut them up, to be honest. And uh, some of them are surprised. I think some of them were, like, hopeful when they went in. Like, maybe we'll get them this time. But after a while, walking with their tail between their legs, I think they eventually gave up. And uh, there's this little segue before what we're going to get into today. The segue is going to give you the, the tension and how, uh, my, how the tables have turned uh, or the turntables. It's an office joke. Uh, so verse 41 in chapter 22, it's going to get us there. So I'll just read it really quick. It says, while the Pharisees were assembled, Jesus then asked them a question after he went through these three. He says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said, well, the son of David. And they would know that. It's from the Old Testament. There was scripture that, prophes- or that would say, prophesy that. He said to them, then how then does David call him Lord? Saying, and he quotes, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Basically, he's saying it doesn't make any sense. The Lord would denote uh, like uh, a higher level of ownership. Whereas if it's your son, it would not, you would never have those two be combined. And so they have no idea. So no one was able to answer him a word. And from that day on, no one dared to question him any longer. So you have three attacks at Jesus. He, uh, He essentially has this third way option almost all in all of them that they just like didn't see coming. And then he, he starts to turn around. He starts to push back. It's kind of like tug of war, right? And he, he asks them a question. 
and now he's on the offense. And Jesus will be the most aggressive that he will be in the entire gospel accounts in this very uh, passage today. And he will use his harshest language today, um, which I don't want to say gives you the right to call people brood of vipers. But I don't know. You have to figure it. Take that one up with him. I don't know. So, but he will call them that. So let's jump into verse 1. And what it's going to do is, this is going to set up, uh, what Jesus is going to do is, he's going to set up, because people are listening to all of this, the reality of what he's about to get into, which are, are called the seven woes. A woe is like a shame on you sort of thing. It's not a woo. A woo is very different, exact opposite. Uh, uh, but the woe is, is him sort of rebuking and, and acknowledging the, the terrible reality of where the religious leaders had come to. But before that, he wants to sort of prove the reality of how bad this is so that his, his woes are more powerful. So he starts off with a few claims. And in verse 1, he says, The crowds and to his disciples. So he's talking to them first. He says, The experts in the law and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. This basically means they're in charge of imposing the law upon the Jewish people. That was their job. Keep the people right before God through Moses' law, which Moses' law, that was the goal. Therefore, pay attention to what they tell you and do it, but do not do what they do. That doesn't make any sense, right? You're like, wait, then you just tell them to do what they do and then not do what they do? How does it? What he's saying is they're on Moses' seat. Pay attention to the laws and what they're telling you because those in themselves are correct. But do not do what they do. What are they doing? They're taking the laws. They're sucking the internal heart value out of them and using them for their own gain. And you've seen this in church. You can play church and look good and look great, but inside you're dying inside, right? And... From the outside, people would say, oh, that person's doing great, right? And then you get to really know them and you realize, oh, wow, like their life is, you know, I see this all the time on social media when someone takes their own life and people are like, I have no idea. They seem so happy. Like they seem like their whole life they were famous or they, were, they just made their big break, you know, the music album or, you know, an actor or whatever. And, and everybody's I just, I don't understand. I, I had no idea. And in the same way, the Pharisees' whole life was gravitated towards how do I guard my external reality that people see me in? And because, let's be honest, internal stuff is way messier. It's way darker. It's way harder. It, it hurts. And so he's, he's just immediately starting to poke this little um, uh, probe through this hole that the people are going to see. And then he says this phrase, which I think is probably the overarching phrase. We'll see this entire passage is, they do not practice what they teach. And so what we're going to get at in this chapter is just hypocrisy at its, at its best, and uh, this isn't hypocrisy, like, it, it is hypocrisy uh, of the idea of just putting on a mask, being fake in front of someone, but some of their hypocrisy is actually just self-deceit in their own terms, meaning some of it's deliberate. You, move, you go into a, a party, and you, you're nervous, and so you want to act a certain way to impress people, right? But some of it is actually self-deceiving, meaning they basically trick themselves into believing a reality that they almost don't even realize anymore. And so when someone calls it out, the only way to acknowledge it is humility. And if you respond in pride, you're sort of on your own. That's why they, like, psychologists would say, like, narcissists are, like, some of the hardest people to, like, to uh, work with. Because the very, uh, I guess you'd call it illness, the very um, diagnosis of that in itself is pride, which doesn't allow you to be humble enough to grow. So you're just stuck. And in the same way, it, it's, they're, not pra they're, they're practicing uh, far from what they teach, which they teach the laws, and the root of the law should be the heart of God, but they, they suck the life out of them. And so his first charge is basically just like, you've taken the law of God, which was a good thing that Moses valued, that God valued for the people, and you have made it impossible to follow. And so what they have done is they've taken Moses' law like this, and then they made another fence around it. It's like when you go to a prison, there's two fences, right? Just in case you get past that first one, 
They got another one to get you, right? And it takes longer, and they did the same thing. They put a fence around a fence, and it has become impossible to the point where they've created Sabbath regulations that are ridiculous and have ruined the heart of the Sabbath. They've created heavy burdens around their type, their, the times of day and the fasting and all this type of stuff to just be uber superficial spiritual people that they think are great. And Jesus, I love how he says they, put, they tie up loads hard to carry and put them on shoulders that they themselves are not even able to lift a finger on. And I, I think he's, I love how he's, he's kind of contrasting with what he had said in Matthew 11 or 13, where one of his most famous uh, verses about his heart, right? He says, my heart is gentle and lowly. And he says, my burden is light, right? My yoke, it is, it is totally light. And, and with that idea, he's saying, your guys' burden and your load is incredibly heavy. And no one can carry it. In fact, you can't even carry it, and you don't even want to help others with it. And he, so he's just setting up this narrative that, that is true of what the, the heart of them have, have we've already seen through his many parables. The next charge is about uh, specific things, which are, are fun uh, culturally, because you're going to read this and be like, I had no idea what's going on here. But this is, this is fun. Uh, it says, they do all their deeds to be seen by people, for they make... Their phylacteries wide and their tassels long. <laughs> You're like, what in the world? What is that? Uh, a phylactery is this little set of books that were like scrolls that had important texts from the Torah, the law of the Bible in them. And then they would put them in, put them in this little box and you wear it on your head and your arm. This is a good photo of what it looks like. This is like a modern day Jew. So, I mean, this is, they still do it today. Looks weird, that's for sure. But um, that, that little box is like, has really tiny little scrolls in it. And the original idea was that they, they took the Shema and they, they took it very literally, like put it on your forehead, put it on your arm, you're never going to forget it. So what was meant to be a spiritual aid, guess what they did? They're like, I'm going to make mine wider to be more impressive. Or I'm going to wear mine outside of the gathering, be like, hey, I read my, my, my scrolls. Like, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's as silly as, like, you know, you wear a certain name brand to, to, like, to show that you have money or you are fakes to lie about how much money you have, right? It's the same idea. It's, it's purely superficial appearance, right? It's like putting a verse on your phone or, the, like, verse on your phone and someone's like, oh, it's so cool. And you're like, I don't know. I never read it. I just have it on here to impress people, right? Like, it, it's, it's just this deeply uh, superficial reality. So that was one example uh, and then he talks about tassels and fringes, which this was a common Jewish practice to be worn on the outer garment. Jesus even wore these. It was a, a, a garment that would have tassels at the bottom. And they, they're like, you know what? Let's make our tassels longer. Can you believe this? These guys are so bored. I don't know. So this is what, uh, 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 you see how he has some tassels. This is what a Pharisee would look like in that time. Uh, and they would have like the, this, this over kind of garment and then they had the tassels. And she's so like, let's make our phylacteries wider and our tassels longer. And that'll show them, right? It's just silly. I don't know. I, I, I was trying to think of an analogy, and I, I think you just get the point. It's ridiculous. And then there's two more things he mentions. The third one is that uh, he mentions uh, they would take the best seats at dinner and worship uh, to, to basically lead and to show off. So the base where you sit was like a status thing. So they would always like fight for the best seats, and Jesus obviously flips that on its, on its head and talks about how you should not assume the, the place of of high authority. And the last one is uh, they loved being called rabbi. Now, rabbi is interesting because Jesus, we know, is called a rabbi. And so it's interesting that he says, you love being called rabbis, but, but Jesus doesn't. But rabbi is, is an interesting word. Uh, in the second century, it, it, it kind of got its full definition, which really just means my great one 
which is essentially like saying my disciple, right? Like the person who I'm, I'm tracking with, I'm following. But what's interesting in Matthew is that Jesus uh, is addressed as teacher only by outsiders, never by his disciples, except for one time. The actual Hebrew word rabbi is only heard from the lips of Judas after his betrayal. That's because rabbi had this sense of pride, right? It's like if I was like, hi, I'm giving you a TED Talk. It's Trey Gilmore, PhD, MD, ADD, ADHD, right? You're like showing off all your letters, right? Look at how smart I am. I went to school for 40 years, you know? And you're like, wow, I'm going to trust what he says. It's kind of like that. Like, Rabbi, it would, it would imply this guy is worth following, right? And so the Pharisees would call each other rabbis to sort of be like, you're a rabbi, I'm a rabbi. We're all worth following. Aren't we great, right? And he's like, stop it. And then he says, you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no one your father on earth, for you only have one father who is in heaven, nor are you able to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. Which is, spoiler alert, that's him, but... The greatest among you will be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So he, he, he just punches open right this, this lens at which the people in the crowds are seeing. So he's talking to his disciples and to the crowds, and they're just standing there. And now he's going to turn almost like a tank. You know how you, you can tell when a tank's going to shoot you because it, like, the whole thing moves? And you, you know if it's not pointing at you, like, what's it going to do? But then it like, lines up with you, and you're like, oh, no. This is the tank moment where Jesus turns to the religious leaders, and they're like, oh, no. right? And this is what happens. He looks them in the eye, and he, he gives them the harshest words that he will give in the entire Bible to these guys. And so what I, what I want to take from that here is, if that is the case, I would say our harshest words often show what we're most passionate about. So let's take notice of this. If Jesus is most angry about this, then we should probably notice it, right? Now, once again, uh, we know that Jesus calls us to be meek, right? And so there's this tension between uh, being harsh and being meek. I think Jesus gets to do what he wants. Uh, I don't think we get to use these woes uh, in, in, uh, in hateful ways, but rebuking ways. Now, what's interesting about him doing this is woes are acknowledging what is a reality with the, the hope and intention of, of guarding the people right, from it. So he's, he's rebuking them in such a way that he's still giving this chance of calling reality what it is. But it's the same thing that happens in the Old Testament with Pharaoh, which a lot of people struggle with. Well, why did God, God harden Pharaoh's heart? And then eventually there, there's this passage that says that basically Pharaoh's heart was so hardened there was no turning back, right? He had, he had shut himself off to God and, and pride had consumed him and there was basically no chance of repentance. And this is a similar uh, style that we see with the Pharisees, that at this point now, there's no going back. And we'll see that with the way that Jesus ends this last woe, because he can tell what they're about to do uh, with him. But let's get into the woes. The first woe, verse 13, there's seven woes. I'm just going to really quickly let you know so you don't stress. If you look in your Bible, there is no verse 14. If you do have verse 14, you probably have a really old Bible. Uh, but verse 14 is by 95% of scholars argued to not be in the traditional manuscript, so it's not in there. So if you ever wondered, how do we trust the Bible? Trust me, there's a lot of arduous process that goes through it, uh, but it is not original, and it dealt with devouring widows' property. So if you have that in there, you could say it's eight woes. I'm going to say seven because we don't use that one, but let's jump in. Verse 13, woe to you, and he's going to say the same thing every time, woe to you, experts in the law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. He's going to tell, say the same thing every time for all the woes, and then he gets into what the woe is. So woe to you, 
You keep locking people out of the kingdom of heaven for you neither enter nor permit those trying to enter or go in. The next one, uh, you cross land in verse 15. You cross land and sea to make one convert. And when you get one, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Ouch. This is uh, him starting off with what's interesting because, you know, I didn't really know that the Jewish people were evangelizing at this time. Now, it's different evangelizing that, like, our good news is Jesus. Their good news was Yahweh is the one true God, and you should follow and worship him. Now, if you're a Gentile, which means you're not Jewish, so let's say they do cross the sea, and these religious leaders are trying to convince and compel Gentiles to follow Yahweh, there is a certain boundary at which they could participate which is exactly why in the temple you have the, the Holy of the Holies for the Jews, the sacrifices, God's presence, and then you have the courtyards, and, all, and then you have the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles is the last place that the Gentiles are able to be. And so during Passover, you see these people coming, they're Gentiles, that are like, I'm doing what I can to follow Yahweh, because they had been evangelized. You see the, uh, um, the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts, he was going there during Passover week to, to, like, to pay tribute money from the queen or whatever, for the Gentiles. So the, the, the Jewish people surprisingly were evangelistic about the one true God, Yahweh. The problem is, is that they were winning them over with the wrong gospel. They were winning them over to Pharisaicism, to hypocrisy, into external religion, not internal values and foundation. And so you, you've seen this. You can do far more damage with a very slightly off gospel than no gospel at all. Meaning, you give somebody like, you know, 9 out of 10 gospel, like, but you just leave out like the whole like you're a sinner part, like you got a pretty messy gospel, right? Or you, 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 like, you leave out the part that like following Jesus means suffering, right? Not always do you receive prosperity, right, in the way that you think you will. You're not just going to get a new car when you follow Jesus. And, and you leave that out, and that, that's far more dangerous because what happens is people latch on to then to the things they like, and when someone comes in and says, hey, let's correct this idea. You are a sinner. It's far harder to convince them that that piece is wrong than just to not at all. So he's like, you're doing more damage than you are just not doing it. And so he's saying, not only are you not going to make it into the kingdom because you're living in an external-based religion, right? Missing the values in the heart of God. But you're dragging everyone else with you. It's like when he talks about earlier, you're blind. You're, you're blind guide guiding a blind person. You're both going to end up in the pit. And so he's like, what you're doing is not only affecting you, it's affecting everyone around you. And what's interesting about this level of hypocrisy is, like I t mentioned earlier, it's far greater than just deliberate, intentional destruction, right? These religious leaders are not going to, to Cyprus to, to be like, hey, Yahweh is the one true God, being like, I hope, like, I'm purposely going to lead you to hell with me, right? They're not like, going to lead me and them to hell today. No, they, are, they have been deceived. They have built a kingdom up in their lives that is so strong that they can see nothing different. And so they are deceiving themselves, and out of that comes hypocrisy. Some people are hypocritical, not even really knowing it. And the most beautiful thing ever is to have someone say, hey, you're being a hypocrite. And then, you, and then you're humble yourself, and you're like, ah, oh, man, you're right. Which is why we all sit here, and we all hang out, and we're in a community, because we make each other better. Because we say, you're being a hypocrite, Right? Never trust the lone wolf. I'm telling you, never trust him or her. Don't trust him because they have nobody in their lives 
that could speak into the ways in which they are deceiving themselves. And you've done this with sin. You've sinned, and then you try and play mind games with yourself, right? You try to justify what you're doing. You try to say, well, I'm not really that bad. Well, like, I've got, you know, I would understand in this situation. Or, you know, oh, the Bible's like, you know, it doesn't say anything about social media. So, I mean, I guess I was on it for nine hours, but it doesn't say anything about not being able to do that. So it's not sin, you know. You play these games, and you're doing it, right? Because you're just trying to create a world where you aren't accountable, and you don't have to worry about it, Right? That's exactly what they were doing. They were giving a slightly um, twisted version of God's truth. The laws are true. The external priority is not. And that's what he's going to be getting at. So the next set of woes is based on that. He says in verse 16, Woe to you blind guides. Whoever swears by the temple is bound by nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is bound by oath. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? And whoever swears by the altar is bound by nothing, but if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by the oath. You are blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and the one who sits on it. This one's really confusing. It seems very like arbitrary, but uh, Justin Smith taught on this a long, long time ago. Because Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount about oaths. Oaths were made in order to project a deeper um, like weight to what you were saying. You know, it's the same. Mo- the modern day phrase is like, "I swear on my mother's grave." Right? You would say that if someone didn't believe you, and you're like, "Trust me, uh, I'm liable for this if if it doesn't go through." Right? That's how much stake I'm willing to bank on this. And so what they were doing is, this is how silly it was. It would be like saying instead of "I swear on my mother's grave," because that could be offensive. It would be like, I swear on my mother's grave's headstone. You're like, I didn't swear on my mother's grave. I swore on her headstone, which is on her grave, but it's different. That's what they were doing. Well, I don't want to swear on the altar because I'm not allowed to do that. God says I can't do that. But like, I'm going to swear on the gift that's on the altar. How about that? Or I'm going to swear on the temple uh, floor that is in the temple. Right? That's what they were doing. This is ridiculous. This is the world we live in. I don't know. That's how, that's how they were. Because they wanted to be able to utilize that for status and authority without having the implications of dishonoring God. And Jesus is like, you guys are, what are you doing? Like, it's still, what makes the gift meaningful? What makes that oath meaningful? It's the altar. What makes the temple meaningful? It's the temple. It's all God's. You're still swearing on God. You're just playing semantics. You're just trying to use words to wordsmith things that you want to do in a certain way to further your agenda. And he's like, it's just ridiculous. And you listening, you're probably like, yeah, that's pretty ridiculous. But we do, we do that all the time. We use certain words we use semantics to make us feel better about the things that which we're doing or not doing. It's the same thing. The fourth one, then, is, is a similar meaning, but it's a practical reality of this. He says, uh, you give a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, yet you neglect what is more important in the law, justice, mercy, mercy and faithfulness. You should have done these things without neglecting the others. Blind guides, you strain out a gnat, you swallow a camel. This one's pretty, I think, pretty obvious, but, you know, they were, they were required by law to tithe, right, to give a tenth of these herbs and all this stuff that they had produced and all that kind of stuff, right? You got some cilantro on your windowsill. You got to give that over to the temple, right, a tenth of that. And so they're spending all their time making sure they give enough cilantro, right? And then meanwhile, their neighbor's like, hey, can you help me out? I'm like, shut up, all right? I got to weigh this cilantro, okay? I mean, that's what they're doing. But think about it. Which one's easier, Putting cilantro on a scale and being like, there we go, one-tenth, nice. And then you feel good. I did the thing. Here's the number. I quantified it. I can check it off. 100% right. God loves me. Your neighbor, like, ah, he's a mess. I don't like him. I don't want to do this. I'm not even any good at that. It's going to cost me time. I have other stuff to do. You're not very important. I don't like you, right? 
it's way harder. But what is the root of the kingdom? Is the kingdom full of a bunch of people who sit on scales and all measure cilantro and yell at each other to back off? Or is it full of people who do give generously to God but also love the people around them, right? The kingdom is not a bunch of cilantro counters. It, it is people who love deeply, who forgive, who, who fight for justice and mercy, which are the very values of God's heart. But our good friend R.T. France, who's a scholar, says, though, that at the moment that you are neglecting the things that matter, those are the things you ought to be concentrating on. But that does not mean, therefore, neglecting the others, right? This is why we call it spiritual formation, being formed holistically into the image of Christ, that our entire lives becomes under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so what happens is sometimes it feels like whack-a-mole, where like, I mean, I'm really struggling with pornography. I delete, I delete my apps on my phone. I, I have a covenant eyes. I have all these accountability partners. I really, six months free of porn, I'm under, I'm under control. And then this other thing starts popping up, right? You start becoming super uh, stingy and you're not generous or you start becoming so busy that you're, you're rushing through things. You're neglecting just being present with people, right? And then you, you center, center on that. But then you get insecure and then you re-download the apps. And then, right? So it's like, yes, that is being human, <laughs> It is the sinful narrative of our lives. And what is true is that sometimes it can feel like whack-a-mole. But regardless of what it feels like, our heart should always be concerned on the things and the values of God. And so sometimes the, the external matters. Sometimes the very thing you're doing does matter. Sometimes we say, oh, it doesn't matter. It does matter what you're doing, right? The things you do matters. But the, the internal reality is what you must address because those things will never change unless you seek out the heart. And that's the next two woes, which focus on that uh, with a cup and a tomb. And in verse 25, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Their hearts are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside may become clean too. This is like practical. I mean, have you ever, anybody ever washed dishes? If you raise your hand, uh, you, you know that... Uh, if, you clean the out, if you clean the outside and then you start cleaning the inside, the inside stuff splashes onto the outside, right? So, like, obviously clean the inside first. If you didn't know that, now you know. But it's, it's this practical idea. And then the tombs is this, like, deeper reality of death that, it, that this type of greed and self-indulgence promotes. You are like whitewashed tombs that look beautiful on the outside, all decorated, but inside are full of bones of the dead and of everything Unclean. In the same way, on the outside you look righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, this is probably I don't I don't I don't have a commentary to agree with this. I haven't read enough on it, but I would say this is probably the most offensive because he's saying that not only are you dead, but everything you have everything unclean in you. Their entire job was to make the Jewish people not dirty. It was to keep them clean. And he's like, everything that you have tried to keep them from, you have absorbed into your tomb. It is brutal. I mean, it is, it is like really brutal to say that. It would be really, really hard. I mean, it would be like you and your job getting a job performance. And you're like, hey, I just want to let you know that like you did terrible this quarter. And you're like, oh. And you're like, yeah, we're really worried about you. Like, we might let you go. And you're like, oh, gosh. And like, yeah, also like the entire company like hates you and is, is failing because of you. Oh. Yeah, and like every client we have, like, like, they're all, like, canceling all of their partnerships because you're just that bad. Like, you ruined it that bad. Like, you would not, like, that's not even bad day. That's, like, that would hurt, you know? I, I don't know if you come back from that one. <laughs> you're, like, I'm just going to go, I'm just going to go, I don't know, I'm going to go find another job, right? Just going to go work at Costco. Like, I think that'll be good, right? It's, it's this idea that, like, 
Not only have you failed internally in your heart, but your heart has caused the most dirty reality that you can imagine that you spent your whole life trying to protect for everyone else. You are the most unclean that you can be. And so what I want to just pick at really quick right here before we get to the last one is that idea of that there is this external reality that Jesus is poking at, and then he kind of contrasts it with this internal reality. And we simplify that, and we say external it can be all these actions, um, purchases, appearance, all this type of stuff, whether it's church stuff or even just like I want to have a nice brand T-shirt or whatever. And then internal is our heart, right? That's our fears, our insecurities, our wills, our affections, our desires. And we contrast what we see here as the Pharisees focusing and prioritizing the external. That's what we're getting at with all these woes. Is that this has been their nature the entire Gospels. Is they have created this ecosystem of external priority. And the reason why, and let's just think about it for a second. The reason why external is so prominent in our church today, in these Pharisees, in our world, is because it's, it's a fixed, quick, easy mentality. You create a facade, right? And you prove people a certain way about yourself. And to be honest, you can do it for a long time. That's what dating is. I mean, the first few weeks of dating, you're like, you know, I'm not going to talk about my dark baggage. I'm not going to fart around them. And I'm going to, you know, look pretty and, you know, and, and not eat buffalo wings, right? You're like, that's like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you're like, I'm just going to like put up these little things and hope they still like me four weeks later. And then I'll let loose. No pun intended, right? Uh, but, but it's like, you, yeah, you'll find, you're going to find out. But it's, it's, it's like you, you do that, right? And, and it's kind of tiring, right? Let's imagine you do that for years, right? You have something, you have a sin in your life that you have not told anyone with or that you've dealt with that you think uh, you just don't want to deal with, right? Or you don't want to tell anyone, uh, you, whatever. It, it is exhausting to carry that. And so what you do is instead of acknowledging and really working through that, which is painful and hard, you just say, I'm just going to create walls around it and then not talk about it, right? It's the room in my house that I don't go and it's cluttered, right? And you say, well, I'll just not go in that room. It's no big deal, right? This is what the Pharisees are doing. And, and what happens is when you start to do it long enough, your insecurities do not go away. They, they, they basically leak into every other room in your house. And then every other room in your house is ran and dictated by that very room that you would not talk to or acknowledge or go in. And so what it does is it creates this, this life that is centered around me and how I can be a certain way around people, how I need to purchase certain things or live a certain way, and it's exhausting. And the, the sad part is people do this for decades sometimes, maybe even a lifetime. But I promise you that it is enslaving and it is exhausting and it will not lead to joy in life in its fullest. It will not. And some of you have followed Jesus and you're still not acknowledging that room and you're wondering why this whole following Jesus thing is so difficult and how there's no joy in it. And right, it's, you, you have a massive room that you're not willing to acknowledge. And it's just leaking into everything else. You say, well, Jesus, here's my heart. And he's like, wait, what about that piece? Well, I don't want to give you that piece, right? There's a story in Acts where that's like the, one of the first instances of, of this, this couple gives over property, but they keep a little back for themselves. And then Peter's like, is this all? And they're like, oh, yeah. And he's like, why did you lie to me? And then they both die. It's crazy, right? It's the same idea. You're not living when you give over part of your heart or part of your rooms hiding this other thing. And so here, here's, the, here's, the flip, here's the flip side, right? Internal work, acknowledging fears, traumas, challenges, personality, pros and cons, all this type of stuff, right? 
it's incredibly hard. It hurts. It's painful. It's exhausting, right? Like, if you've ever been to therapy, you don't just show up in an hour and be like, oh, that was good. Here's $100. I'm fixed, right? It's not like an oil change, right? It's, it's this long process. Or maybe your counselor doesn't really help. Or maybe you're seeking medication. Or maybe you're trying to be in an accountability group. Or maybe you're trying to read a book, right? You're trying to be, like, there's all these things that you can do. But it's exhausting, and it's hard, and it's tiring. And it's, you feel raw. You feel like, uh, like, a, like, a, um, like a hermit crab or a snail, like, pulled out of its shell, right? You're like, I'm just, like, very vulnerable. And, you, and you're tense. But at the end of the day, it is always freeing. And I promise you, it will give your soul rest. And that's the difference between the Pharisees. The Pharisees, man, I would, that, what a terrible life. Just waking up every day being like, how do we keep this thing together, right? How do we keep this little, little ecosystem together? It's exhausting. And, and because they're, they're wanting short-term pleasure and comfort, but they're going to have long-term insecurity. Whereas if we approach from the eternal and we clean the cup from the inside, we see short-term discomfort, absolutely pain probably, but we get long-term eternal joy. You get long-term joy. When you're 60, 70, or 80, and you look at your life, right, you don't want to say, well, I held on this thing for five decades, and now I, if I would have known the joy that I have now, I would have done it 30 years before. And so Jesus is angry at them, saying, you are, are sucking the joy out of following Yahweh. And it's, it's so terrible. And so his final woe is the culmination of all of these, and it's going to surprise you. It's going to seem like it's a little bit far-fetched. But he says, woe to you. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would have not participated with them in the shedding of blood of the prophets because they killed a lot of the prophets. By saying this, you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your ancestors, meaning take on that weight. You snakes, you offspring of vipers. There we go. How will you escape from being condemned to hell? For this reason, I am sending you prophets and wise men and experts in the law, some of whom you uh, will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town, so that on your will will come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, that this generation will be held responsible for all of these things. He, he compares this last woe to, to basically murder, to violence, right? It's uh, an unrepentant heart, and it leads to violence and excuses. Now, there's two pieces I want to focus on, and then I'm going to invite the band up in a second. And, and here's what it is. The, the, Adam Brigham talked a long time ago about murder, how he's like, we're not all that far from murder, because Jesus tells us anger in our heart is murder, right? It's wishing malice and violence on another imago de human made in the image of God. And the best way to be able to do that is to dehumanize them. Because, oh, they're not really a person, right? Oh, they're terrible. Oh, they do these things, right? Then you, then you justify your anger. And uh, in this instance, Jesus is saying the culmination of all of this leads to murder. What murder? Four days later, Jesus, right? They're going to murder him, and he knows it's in their heart, right? They know it's in their heart. They're like, i got to kill this guy. He knows it, and he's saying all of what you're doing leads to death. It leads to violence, and it leads to death. Now, let me, let me run you through these, and this is going to paint this picture of why it gets to that point and how it's very close in your heart. The first, and the first two is centered around, I have a, a doctrine or a lifestyle that I live that I believe is correct, and I, I don't want to hear anything else about it, and it's all external-based, right? It's focused on me hiding true insecurities and creating a mirage around my life that honestly just makes me sleep at night sometimes, right? 
People think I'm cool. People think I'm great, wealthy, smart, whatever. And you create this ecosystem that's centered around you and what other people think of you. It's all you-centered, right? Your impact, your influence. And then so what you do is you create everything in your life to center around that ecosystem. And then what happens is uh, the world, which you do not control, hits you, right? Or maybe someone that's a, that loves Jesus is trying to sort of push you and say, hey, you're, you're living your own dream here. You're not following Jesus. You're, you're making your own God. And what that happens then is it starts to hit at your walls of insecurity. And how do you respond? It's like whenever you corner a raccoon. Anybody ever try to pull a raccoon out of a dumpster? I did. Good luck. Okay? They're, they're going to come at you. with their They have hands. It's weird. And <laughs> they come at you because they have no other option. They're in a corner. This big person's come at them. Like, they have no other choice, right? You have created an ecosystem uh, that is guarding your insecurities. And so you literally attack anything that, that threatens it because you're insecure and you're fearful of losing what you have created, which is just vanity, right? And the, the Pharisees are terrified of losing what they've created. And so the external rules are easier to manage, to, to check off, to do, to perform. Internal is way harder. So then they create this ecosystem. They get attacked, right, by the light. The light comes into the darkness, right? The, the darkness hates the light. And then what happens is their only response is aggression and, and violence. It's, it's, it's saying, I, I got to prioritize the center, which is me, and this is, this is hurting me. And so they do whatever they can to get rid of that threat. And what that means is they start to dehumanize that person for the sake of their own vanity and glory. And then before you know it, you don't think much about that person. And then if they die, you wouldn't really care. And if you're a part of it, whenever, right? Now, death can be physical. If they have a person actually, you kill them. But a lot of people we've killed in our hearts, right? Hey, you're dead to me. Ah, like, I don't want you around. Ah, I'm tired of you, like, nagging me about this thing, right? And you push them away. And this, this is the point. You, they, they have killed the Jewish culture following Yahweh. And that is what he gets at. And as uh, I want to invite the band up. The last part is the excuses. And I think this is, like, probably our most convicting. Is not only do we do this. Not only do we create the ecosystem, we fight back because we're not willing to acknowledge our insecurities and things like that, but then we make excuses, which is exactly what they did. Well, if we had been alive during those prophets, we wouldn't have killed them. And Jesus is like, yes, you would have killed them. You're going to kill me right now. Like, you're going to do it. You would have done it. And we do that. We play mind games. We justify our sin. We deny it, right? We play all these games, and, and an unrepentant heart always leads to violence and excuses, so we got one, one last song. Uh, we're going to kind of merge everything together just for time's sake. So uh, we'll put up the formation slide and leave that up for you if you want to process through the different things you can do. I would encourage you. This is kind of a newer song, and so if you just want to sit and listen, that's great. If you want to stand and sing, you can. Bread and Cup is right there. It's gluten-free and in the back. And then we have people in the back who would just any of this that you are feeling a weight or a stirring, we would love for you to get prayer. And uh, I would say the main the main focus here is just, am I creating an ecosystem around my insecurities, and what do I need to really surrender and hand over to God? Because some of you have been dealing with that for decades, and I just want you to know, you can be free in an instant with surrender. So I encourage you to pray through that, and may the Spirit work through that. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.